Welcome to Ecoactivist Journeys. Uh, my name is Leah, I'm your show host, and today I'm here with Joji Mehta, the Executive Director and Co-Founder of Stop Ecocide International. We actually met in person for the first time in Stockholm for the Stockholm Plus 50 conference in June this year, and we will talk a little bit about um, Stockholm and progress made there. Um, but before we do that, um, for those that maybe are not in the international law sphere and maybe don't even know what Stop Ecocide International is and what they do, um, or what an international law on ecocide would mean. I think it'd be good for us to start with a little bit of an introduction. So yes, um, Jojo, thank you so much for taking time to be here today and um, explain how did this journey of co-founding Stop Ecocide International with Holly Higgins start and what does an international law on um, ecocide mean? Hey, it's lovely to be with you. <laughs> so um, I've been working on this since 2014 when I first started working with Polly Higgins. Um, and together we co-founded what is now Stop Ecocide International in 2017 um, with a, really a single aim, which is to make ecocide or severe harm to nature um, a, an international crime alongside war crimes, genocide, uh, crimes against humanity and the crime of aggression. Um, so it's got a very sort of unique um, and very precise aim. Um, but we also believe that in doing this, um, we sort of achieve very much a wider goal as well of creating a foundation for existing environmental law, because that really foundational piece about, pro you know, prohibiting the worst harms simply doesn't exist in most of the world but also shifting consciousness really around how we treat nature. Because, you know, when we when we describe something as an international crime, what we're saying is it is completely taboo. It is the worst thing you can do. Um, and so to add destruction of nature to that list could have a really um, profound effect on how we treat and how we how we think we relate to the natural world around us. Yeah, and also just because you exp always explain this so well, I think, because a lot of people often say, you know, well, we have different local environmental laws and things like that. Why is it that we need a new international law that addresses ecocide? Well, I mean, apart from the fact that there isn't actually, most countries don't have laws that address ecocide. So... Absolutely. I mean, there are plenty of laws um, internationally around the environment. Most of them sit in the civil law or regulatory sphere. Um, but if you sort of change or, or, or add to environmental regulation, what you tend to do is change um, what corporations budget for rather than what they actually do, um, because they consider a certain level of harm to the environment as a cost of doing business. And so they're often prepared to fight court cases or to pay fines or in some cases compensation but what you don't tend to do with um, civil law is change practice um, whereas criminal law has the potential to do that but even those environmental crimes that exist are not well enforced around the world and this partly comes back to this uh, mindset um, that I was briefly mentioning just now which is that you, you know most of the the sort of legal system that we operate in globally um, focuses on property and on people. And, you know, that's not to say that obviously harm to people is absolutely should be, um, you know, a core element of criminal law, but it doesn't so much focus on the environment. And so there's a way in which even though 
existing environmental crimes are actually up there with drug trafficking now as some of the most lucrative in criminal profits in the world, the actual enforcement of those crimes is very minimal. And, and so putting this foundational piece in place at the international level has this way of creating a difference. I mean, uh, you know, to use a, to, 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 to tell you through an anecdote, I mean, in a sense, you, you wouldn't go to a government and say, can I have a license to kill 500 people for my new infrastructure project? I mean, it literally wouldn't cross your mind um, because there is that taboo in place. Obviously, it's criminal. It's also criminally insane. Um, but we just don't recoil in the same way from damaging the environment. And that's why it's so important to aim at the top level, at the international level, to get that really foundational piece in place. Yeah, because it's also obviously a lot about that norm building around what do we accept as practice within the world? What do we allow people and corporations to do? Um, and I think, yeah, that's so important to look at. Well, what are the norms that we're setting at the international phase? Because even just setting them, I think, has a big impact on on what people perceive as normal action or accepted action within society, even if, let's say, cases aren't like it's not all about the cases that are then taken to court, I think. So absolutely. Um, and I think I think um, in our culture, we tend to use criminal law to draw those moral lines. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why it's so important. I mean, just to give a, a brief example, I mean, until 1989 in the UK, where I'm from, um, it, it was perfectly legal to discipline your child physically. Um, the Child Protection Act came in in 1989 and outlawed. Uh, physical harm to your to children, including your own children. Um, and now if you stop someone on the street and ask them, is it okay to beat your child? Everyone will say no. You know, effectively that, that you know, the existence of that crime has really helped to change that norm. So yes, it has a very strong effect. Yeah. Also, I'd really love us to talk a little bit about that, that distinction between nature rights and ecocide law, because that actually also came up in Stockholm where you also explained, you know, well, what is actually the difference between talking about nature rights and talking about international um, ecocide law? So maybe you could explain like, what is the difference, how are they interlinked? Yeah, and this is really relevant at the moment because just yesterday, the UN General Assembly um, uh, voted very overwhelmingly in favor of acknowledging a human right to um, a clean and healthy environment, for example. So, um, I mean, obviously, you know, nature rights and human rights is all talking about the kind of rights sphere of law, if you like. Um, but it has a particular relationship to criminal law. And, and, and um, although, you know, you don't have to have rights of nature in place in order for ecocide to become a crime, um, the two do have a complementary relationship in the sense that, you know, I mean, our basic human right is the right to life, but what protects that right is the fact that taking that life is a crime. So murder is a crime. Um, and if murder wasn't a crime, then that right might not nearly be so so protective. You know, there's a, there's a strong... Um, complementary element and so you know bringing in a criminal law of ecocide is, is like the other side of the coin if you like it's what protects potentially any rights that nature might have but I think it's also worth realizing that in a way um, you know adding a crime to a list of crimes so adding ecocide to that list of international crimes is is actually in a way it's a, it's quite a, a sort of straightforward legal step um, acknowledging rights of nature, which actually is starting to happen in many places around the world in particular landscape features, for example, um, 
actually represents a much more profound shift in the whole system. So, you know, the way we see ecocide crime is, is it's almost sort of creating a bridging piece from an existing system towards one that more generally might acknowledge the, you know, the intrin intrinsic rights of the natural world. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's, I think it's a good way to sort of see that because on the one hand, you know, nature rights, I think some people still find that idea quite radical um, in some ways. Um, even though you know we look at corporate rights and, and <laughs> find that normal, so um, and find it normal that you know corporations have the same legal personhood almost as a person as a human being, and nature doesn't have anywhere close to those rights. Um, but um, having ecocide sort of as that bridge to look at how do we make? I mean, and in in that case, it's often the most severe crimes that are happening globally um, around the environment. How do we criminalize? criminalize those um but yeah to to dive a little bit into you know well this is great but how would we actually operationalize um, ecocide as an international crime and some people are always like well international law isn't isn't always known as the most effective avenue but is there a way to make it more effective and to hold actors accountable then if we were to make ecocide an international crime I think the answer is definitely yes. Um, and I think it goes beyond, you know, once the law comes into place, or I should say beyond almost before the law comes into place, there's also a huge power to it. So let me briefly explain. So um, the procedure for criminalizing ecocide at the level of um, the International Criminal Court has several stages. So there has to be a formal proposal that has to be sort of accepted as valid by the um, uh, by the majority of, of, of states that, that can vote there. Um, there's then a process of negotiation, which could lead to actual adoption into the statute, the Rome, the Rome Statute, which is the governing document of the, the ICC. Um, and then, of course, states can then begin to ratify it, which they may do. You know, I mean, to begin with, it might be several states at once, and then states might gradually add add their own ratifications. Um, now, at present, we're at the stage of, uh, the, you know, the conversation is now firmly on the table at the International Criminal Court. Uh, there hasn't yet been a formal proposal, but we anticipate that that could well be possible within the next year or so, which which would be amazing. Mm -hmm. um, now, once a country ratifies um, ecocide um, at the ICC, it also has to incorporate it in its own domestic legislation. And that's one of the unique things about the mechanism of the ICC. It's the only global mechanism that directly accesses the criminal justice system of its member states. So if you ratify a crime there, you have to include it in your own domestic legislation. Now, with war crimes or genocide, the likelihood is that if you're it, the, the idea is that there's a complementarity, you know, the ICC will prosecute only if the nation itself either can't or won't. So if if you're um, involved in war crimes or genocide, the likelihood is your own country won't prosecute you, um, just because the nature of the of the beast, if you like. You, so ultimately you may end, end up at the ICC. But um, the ICC has a reputation of doing things rather slowly and, and, and you know, it's, it, it doesn't have, as you say, the most uh, biggest reputation for effectiveness. However, with ecocide, it's largely corporate activity that we'd be talking about. Um, obviously, sometimes that involves states as well. Um, but what that means is that, you know, potentially that crime can be prosecuted anywhere where that um you know where it's been ratified so it, it, it sort of broadens the likelihood of prosecutions taking place in other places other than the hague for example mm -hmm. um so so there's a sort of breadth of potential there um but i think that potential actually sort of extends back in time to to, to kind of to now in a way in the sense that 
often when people ask about um, creating this new international crime, they're talking about, you know, how will it be implemented when it's in place? You know, what will be the mechanisms for prosecution? But actually the real power of it in terms of changing behaviour, which is ultimately what we want, actually starts as soon as people hear about it. Because if you think about it, I mean, criminal law isn't retroactive. So, I mean, much as this will disappoint some activists, and understandably so, it's not like once it's in place, we can then go back and prosecute people who were committing ecocide before it came into place. We can't do that. But the advantage of that fact is that companies and you know, basically um, anyone who potentially is committing ecocide can see it coming. So, you know, policymakers, you know, corporate decision makers can see the law approaching and this is already beginning to happen. And of course, at that point, the space of time between now and then becomes like a compliance period because they may not know exactly when it's coming to, going to come into place. But even quite conservative politicians are now telling us this is inevitable. We just don't know when it's coming. So what that means is that, you know, those who are going to be making those decisions, you know, standing there or sitting there with their pen over the dotted line, you know, whether that's insurers, investors, CEOs, you know, are going to have to be thinking twice and thinking very carefully mm -hmm. about whether what they're about to sign for will effectively, if it's continuing beyond the point of of um, this law coming into place will actually become prosecutable. So, um, so there's a way that it has the potential already to steer in a new direction. And we're already hearing, for example, and we heard, we heard um, a few months ago, actually, about um, an extractive company that signed some environmental agreements they didn't want to sign because they saw the definition of ecocide that was potentially coming down the line. So the power of it is, is much more immediate than people, than people realise. Yeah, no, that's really interesting to sort of realize it's all about planning for the future. So it's not necessarily about the events that have already happened, but it's more about sort of setting an agenda to say, well, if this is in place, you know, there's certain activities that are just not acceptable anymore. Uh, and I also find it quite interesting because obviously corporate actors aren't really addressed under international law, which is a problem, I think, anyway. <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, some people would would uh, would have, um, you know, e ecocide, an, an ecocide amendment submitted alongside, if you like, an amendment to add corporations to, mm. to, the, to the legal persons that can be prosecuted at the international level. We haven't so far specifically advocated for that um, for the simple reason that, you know, changing international law in the first place is a pretty massive ask. I mean, if you then want to change the entire framework so that legal persons, i.e. corporations, can be prosecuted too, that's a whole nother ballpark. But there is another reason why we don't necessarily focus on that. And actually, individual responsibility, which is what the ICC focuses on, is, is, is the responsibility, criminal responsibility of individuals. That's actually hugely powerful because, um, you know, we, corporations can get prosecuted for environmental crimes. And sometimes, you know, in theory, uh, you know, a key decision maker could be prosecuted. But mostly, you know, courts will often op opt to prosecute the company because it's easier um, and they will simply pay a fine. And, and you know, the whole court case is is much more straightforward in that way. Now, we don't actually want that. What we want is, is for people to be thinking twice before making decisions. And mm. if their personal freedom and reputation is on the line, then that is far more likely to happen. And in fact, there was a study done in Colorado University a few years ago where they examined, you know, what kind of changes um, in corporate behavior could you see when you changed environmental law? And, and that's where um, uh, what I mentioned earlier, you know, if you change uh, regulation, what you tend to change is corporate budgeting. But as soon as you add a criminal element, you start seeing differences in what corporations actually do. Mm. 
And that is, and that is because people's personal, you know, if, if you're, yeah. if, you know, if you're sitting there as a, as a key decision maker thinking I could go to jail for this, you know, then you're clearly going to think really pretty hard about what you decide yeah. to do. Um, and, mm-hmm. but it also gives corporations a freedom, a, a freedom to say no to the things that are destructive, which if this law was not in place, they might not be able to do because we also have to remember that corporate decision makers, their primary obligation is to return profit to their shareholders. And, mm-hmm. and that's not something that they necessarily have control over. That That's actually in, most, in many cases a legal obligation. Mm-hmm. So you, what you have to put in place is something that trumps that obligation, something that allows them to say to their shareholders, do you know what? We can't do it that way because that way is criminal. And actually there are an awful lot of corporate decision makers out there who have already said this would really help them to move companies in the right direction yeah no that's that's i hadn't i hadn't really thought about it that way but that's really great insight to sort of see well maybe it's not necessary that we want how it's done currently the whole corporation sort of as head but like individual actors thinking about their what they're doing and what that response is but also giving them a framework to say well this is actually a legal obligation now um and and a legal framework um that has to be accounted for other than just you know the shareholder profits which puts like a little bit of a damper there as well so i think um yeah Yeah, that would be really exciting i think it's also important to think of it from the perspective of um you know, the, the impact, you know, ind- individual criminal responsibility also does have an impact on the corporation at large, because, um, you know, if a key corporate officer is accused of um, criminal activity, even if ultimately they don't end up going to jail, the point is their reputation is instantly um, in trouble, but not just their reputation, the company's reputation. And of course, what you then see is you see the stock value plummet. And of course, that's exactly what you don't want to happen if you're a corporate officer. So, so you yeah. know, so again, it does it does have a broad effect on the on the wider corporation as yeah. well. I mean, you only have to look at I don't know an example like Enron or whatever when the criminal fraud was exposed that you know the the stock value fell very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it's just a first stepping stone. We don't know what that would mean in future if corporate corporations were to be included as more prevalent actor within the international sphere in general because also within in climate agreements and and everything they're playing an increasing role and I think there's also an increased recognition that they have to be involved both in terms of being held responsible but also in in guiding action um, towards change and financing action and um, so I think hopefully with with time we'll see some progress in, in that direction as well so I, th- I think that's absolutely the case. And and in a way, I mean, the, I think we've all seen a sort of rising level of frustration globally at the way that, you know, the multilateral agreements that are in place, whether it's Paris, whether it's the Convention on Biological Diversity, whether it's, you know, targets like the SDGs or so on. You know, it's like the implementation is proving really difficult, is really painful, is really slow. Um, and, you know, we would, we would argue that that is partly because the right enabling conditions are not in place. You know, if you put the criminal law framework in place, suddenly you have parameters within which people have to operate and it gets 
gets a lot easier because at that point, you know, all the different sectors can start asking the right questions. They can kind of go, okay, well, if these are our limits, if this is our framework, you know, what is it that we can do? And what is it that we need to think about? And of course, as soon as they start asking those questions, the answers start coming. But if you don't have the framework for asking the right questions, it's actually quite hard to move forward. And psychologically, you know, we humans are not really great at changing habits, you know, unless we're forced to. So it will really help in that way. Yeah, no, I think that's why I find like ecocide law is such an exciting development, because if you look at international law on climate change, it's really just progressing and the environment, you know, it's progressing way too slowly. But that's also because we've not set the norms and the legal framework in place that would support those developments. So I think it's such a process of pushing forward international climate agreements and progress on Paris as well. Um, because it actually sets, yeah, sets sets a, a clear goal and a clear um, standard for, for the whole world in terms of what is acceptable and what do we as humans deem um, responsible action and deem mm. morally right. Because currently we are deeming it morally right that corporations can't kill the environment and people in the progress in order to make profits. Mm. And yeah, I think that's really exciting to sort of see that this is really, I think, accelerating to to change. You know, we, we're seeing actors say, well, this is it's only a matter of time. It, it will it will come in place. And I think that's quite exciting. But to go a little bit to to um, the Rome statue adoption, I, you know, um, from your explanation, it doesn't actually sound like a difficult process necessarily um, as soon as it's actually put forward on the table. Um, or I don't know, what do you, is it, is it a difficult, would it, how long would it take? What do you well, think? I, I mean, I think, I mean, anyone that sat through a day of UN negotiations will know that something, <laughs> you know, once you actually get states at the table kind of negotiating stuff, you know, there is definitely time involved. It's the, you know, it's not something that happens overnight. Um, sure. But I mean, in terms of, you know, the steps that are set out yeah. in the statute, um, it, it is relatively straightforward. Um, of course, what, what it involves ultimately is enough countries feeling safe about it. I mean, when it comes to politics, this is what we're discovering, is that... Um, well, politicians are often the last to the party um, in the sense that, you know, there may be all sorts of other sectors and civil society and in the private sector as well, even talking about these things before the politicians will get on board. Um, so they need to feel safe. And and I think there's, uh, this is another reason why we, um, uh, I mean, we would never discourage anyone from, from moving forward nationally with an ecocide law. And there are some countries that are doing that, which is very encouraging. And, um, but um, one of the reasons we aim for it internationally is because politically it feels safer because countries are not having to sort of stick their necks out, if you like, and perhaps become what they might feel might be uncompetitive or those kinds of things. Um, but they can, you know, they can express support. And of course, the more countries that express support, the more there is safety in numbers and the more that, you know, that negotiation becomes more straightforward and easier and all of those things. Um, so it is a, it is a business of building momentum. It is, is a, and, and it's for also very much about, um, you know, it's about the global conversation. I and mean, we've seen this as, as the conversation gets louder. And I think it'd be interesting to bring in Stockholm at this point, because mm -hmm. there's something we very much saw in Stockholm was the, that although state representatives were not mentioning ecocide, we almost felt like they were avoiding mentioning it rather than not knowing about it. Because, because the, the whole sort of all the corridors of that conference and the streets in Stockholm were buzzing 
with the word ecocide actually yeah. and with the whole concept you know it was it was coming up in all the demonstrations but it was also coming up in lots of side events it was coming up in conversations in the corridors it was coming up all over the place yeah. um and and the more that that happens you know the more that the un um and the state actors start realizing that this is this is a really serious um consideration and really serious conversation that is really becoming a, a you know a global demand um and so and 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 interestingly I think um, the remarks that came from the executive director of the UN Environment Programme, mm -hmm. Inga Anderson, just after the Stockholm conference were absolutely um, key. I really sort of expressed this really well because, you know, she described almost um, that, you know, ecocide is a concept that's sort of floating to the top, if you like. And, yeah. and you know, she actually, the way she said it was that she, she sees the word walking its way into the, the UN vocabulary, you know. Mm -hmm. So effectively, it is becoming acknowledged at that level of in, in international diplomatic discussion. And, and so, you know, while, as I say, the actual steps as they're set out in the statute are relatively straightforward, a lot of this depends on how many people in the public, in their different sectors, in their different networks are talking about this. Because the more that the word is used, the more the concept is spoken about, the more that the demand to criminalize it is out there, the, the more that language is familiar, the easier it is for those diplomats and for those politicians to say, OK, this is something that really needs moving on now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, for me, Stockholm was also, yeah, my first like UN conference, but I thought it was really amazing to sort of see that ecocide was such a prevalent term, like it was discussed in like, so many of the um, side events, but also some of the main ones and the youth policy paper obviously included it. And then it was picked up by, yeah, by key people and Inga Anderson, one of them talking about that and, and mentioning it and sort of acknowledging um, ecocide as, yeah, as a concept in, in its in its right and as, a, as something that ought to be addressed and ought to be um, discussed further. And, and I think that was quite exciting. I don't know with your, um, what, what did you feel sort of, I mean, you already said, you know, it was quite exciting to see that, but do you think like Stockholm added to sort of bring some progress to um, bring international, like the international discussions on ecocide law forward? Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I think it was also particularly, it was particularly pertinent for the um, the Stop Ecocide organization, but you know, the, the movement to criminalize ecocide because the word was first used um, on the international diplomatic stage 50 years previously at the first UN Environment Conference um, by the Swedish um, leader Olaf Palmer. And so there was this kind of resonance um, with, you know, so for that, for that reason, even for that reason alone, the Stockholm Conference is very important, I think, for the movement. Yeah. Um, but it was also quite poignant. I mean, in the sense that, I mean, I, I actually, um, one of the, you know, for, for, for some of the speeches I was doing at Stockholm, I actually sort of, part of my prep was to actually sort of, you know, read through the full text of the Stockholm Declaration from 1972 and so on. And actually it was, it was, it was astonishing because so much of it is so, is still relevant now. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, it feels like it hasn't been done. I mean, so the, you know, the, the stuff about sort of economic development, you can see that some, you know, quite a bit of that has been kind of acted upon in the intervening years. But um, but when you came to the environmental protection side of it, it really felt like very little had kind of progressed since then. So there was this kind of poignancy to, to kind of, um, you know, being back in Stockholm to say, look, you know, this really, really needs acting. It hasn't been for 50 years. And at the same time as well, I think there was this kind of echo 
of what happened with um with the crime of genocide i mean you know this which which was um you know first conceptualized in the 40s and you know acknowledged in the 40s but not actually criminal you know made into an international crime until the 90s so again you had this kind of 50 year um gap and it almost feels like well you know if if that's what it takes well we're at those 50 years now so it really is time to do this um and so yeah there was there was a really strong strong sense of of how um potent that was um and i think also i mean there were other sort of groups as well like for example the 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 faith groups also talking about ecocide and and the interfaith statement that was submitted um as part of the un proceedings also clearly called Mm. for ecocide um ecocide crime so you know there was there was a you know there was a really strong sense that this was sort of pushing the agenda forward and and in the regional consultations leading up to the um to, to the conference as well i mean some of the you know the sort of reports that were coming out of those were also mentioning and calling for ecocide um, and as you say the youth paper was absolutely categorical mm-hmm. it was really really clear um and you know the the representative who spoke in the plenary as well was absolutely clear that it was one of the top um, yeah yeah I mean it was the, the first one that was sort of Absolutely. up there mentioned so exactly so this was this was fantastic and 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 we're seeing you know huge interest in the youth movement globally in this because you know it's it's one thing to I mean you could think of it you know it's one thing to raise the alarm you know let's say you're, you know as, as Greta put it so eloquently a couple of years ago you know our house is on fire it's one yeah. thing to it's one thing to hit the fire alarm it's another to get the hose you know, and 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 you could think in this context of ecocide law is really quite a powerful hose. <laughs> I like that. I really like that. No, I I think I I think so too because especially for for us as young people, you know, we see these conferences and these things happening, and you know, fifty years later, and there's still like there's still so much to do, especially on the environmental sphere, and you know, the ecological and climate crisis are obviously progressed a lot further, and it's still. You know you read through these texts and it's still all relevant and you're like oh my gosh this was 50 years ago um and you know what's happening now and what can we do to actually take it in place and I think it also draws to the question what's missing in our current system and in our framework that is not allowing progress on environmental action to be taken and I think for me um that clearly is the legal parameters that we set and the norms that we set in the international sphere so that's why I think it's so exciting that this has been this is really pushing action and, and is really putting something concrete in place rather than just saying okay different states can take different approaches to environment but no it's putting it's about putting a norm in place and a law in place that is at an international level absolutely so. i think i mean i think this is i think this is very important and but I, th- I think there's also um you know this also relates to you know issues of um inequality issues of you know colonialism and all of these things because um i mean even i mean there are the international criminal court itself has been you know accused of being a sort of neo-colonial institution in some ways but with with the ecocide there is a potential for a kind of rebalancing in the sense that you know a lot of the ecocidal activity takes place in the so-called global south and, and developing countries whereas the decisions that lead to it are taken in the wealthy north and of course those international crimes aim at sort of going to as far up the 
up the tree, if you like, as possible. Um, so the, uh, in terms of decision making. So as with genocide, it's not the foot soldiers that you prosecute, it's the controlling minds. Um, and so, you know, there is a way here of, of potentially rebalancing where it's not those who are on the ground um, in those countries who this this law is is aimed at it's those who are actually sort of at the decision making level um and so that's that's also i think a, a really important aspect and i think what, what's been perhaps the key milestone of the last um year or so was the the um the launch of the consensus definition so in the past there had been definitions of ecocide but they were always sort of working definitions that were created by, say, individual lawyers, including Polly Higgins, for example, whose definition we used as a campaign working definition for some time. Um, but they were always sort of, you know, a lawyer or a group of lawyers saying, um, you know, we think it should be a crime, we think it should look like this, you know, so in a sense, a personal opinion, no, um, albeit a legal one. Um, but the difference that we have now is that there is, an, uh, there is a defini definition out there which can genu genuinely um, be seen to be a consensus decision because um, it came from a, a panel of international lawyers from around the world, so 12 different lawyers that were convened by our foundation. Um, and, you know, all with different um, specific legal backgrounds, international humanitarian law, international criminal law, environmental law and climate law, but also different ideologies, so from more conventional um, lawyers maybe from the International Law Commission to more radical sort of people's lawyers, perhaps you might call activist lawyers, um, at, at the other end. So for the definition to emerge, you know, each of those people had to kind of concede something so that the definition we ended up with, which is very concise, um, was, was could be genuinely seen to be a consensus definition. And it's actually made a massive difference to how seriously this, this movement is taken worldwide. And, and the definition is so concise that it fits on the back of a business card, which is just amazing. And, you know, there's obviously a bit more to it describing the, the definition of terms, but the core of the definition, and I'll read it if you don't mind, um, is, is so... Um, sort of short and, and clear that it's been really impactful. So it's this, ecocide means unlawful or wanton acts committed with knowledge that there is a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment being caused by those acts. So it, it's, it's actually super simple and really easy to understand. And again, when you're dealing with politicians, this is super useful because they're really busy people. They don't have time to read through 20 page document of, you know, of detail. But if you can present a really simple definition like this, it can be taken, it can be taken in and understood easily. And at the same time, the language, I mean, for those who, who are interested to go to go look this sort of thing up, the, the language is also very strongly based on previous treaties, other parts of the Rome Statute, um, the Geneva Protocols and, and you know, other other legal texts, which means that the the language is is familiar. It's understandable. Um, and then there are three, I would say, three key elements to this definition, which make it um, which kind of have it hit a sort of a sweet spot for politicians from and and people from all different um, geographies, different uh, different uh, parts of the world, but al but also different um, uh, perhaps persuasions, different levels of you know how progressive mm -hmm. or conservative they may be, um, and I think that those 
the explain those the 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 one one how severe is the harm that's being threatened? You know, is it severe and either widespread or long term? So this is aimed at an international crime level. It's not just, you know, cutting down the trees on your village green, um, you know, or, uh, you know, a very local pollution event. It's something that needs to be at the level of an international crime. So you're trying to identify the worst harms. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that it's it's also a crime of um, of endangerment. So it's not... It's not about waiting until the harm has happened and then trying to work your way back to find out who did it. We, with environmental crime, that's really important because we don't want to wait till half the world's destroyed and then try and work out whose fault it is. Yeah. You know, you, you actually, the, the, the crime actually lies in the acts committed with knowledge of the likelihood. In other words, the acts that threaten that harm. And that's why it's going to have people pause with their pens over the dotted line and then the third element which is what what made me sort of bring this 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 in actually is that there is a certain degree of flexibility in there which is very important politically um, and because you know different countries are at different stages of development and have different um, bodies of environmental law so by saying that ecocide must be either unlawful or wanton acts you're acknowledging the fact that um, you know actually a lot of environmental law involves already a lot of environmental damage involves already breaches of regulation so that you're instantly accessing those those situations but you're also acknowledging that bodies of law in different countries are different um so you're not sort of cutting straight across anything that already exists and saying whatever you thought before this is now criminal Mm -hmm. so there's a certain level of 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 sort of give and take there which is going to be important for developing countries for example however with the word wanton or as as it's often translated into the uh, latinate languages arbitrary what you're meaning is even if the action um is permitted and a lot of seriously damaging actions are permitted you know if it's going to create a disproportionate level of damage then that can still be considered ecocide Mm-hmm. So, so what you've got there is a kind of a combination that works functionally really well with existing law, and and this is really important. So I know I'm going on a bit, but it's this is <laughs> this is really important. Is that it? Kind of future proofs the definition. It means that all of those activists, all of those experts, all of those NGOs who are working on improving very particular areas of law can be reassured to know that whatever they improve will also improve this definition. So, you know, as as the law in in other areas improves, you know, that word unlawful comes to encompass the new, you know, what whatever develops around the world. So it kind of draws environmental law forward in quite an active way. And, and it also, you know, means that the crime remains relevant over time. Yeah, no, I think that's so important because wording. So thanks for explaining that, because wording is so important within international law. And I think obviously sometimes the question right as well. If it's not how to find that balance between a stricter law and a law that obviously is very relevant and accepted internationally. Um, but would you say definitely that within this definition, there are parameter, there's also parameters set that if that's there are examples of um, yeah, ecocide um, around the world that could then be taken to the international court and actually also be prosecuted because the definition is strong enough to support that 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it feels like, as I say, it feels very much like this definition hits a kind of a, a sweet mm -hmm. spot. And of course, what we also need to recognize is that we, you know, everything does not have to be set in stone within the definition. You also, you've got all the jurisprudence that may develop over time. Um, but also you've got, the, you, you need to also take into account the lawyers themselves, and the judiciary. Mm -hmm. And there's a really strong appetite now within the legal world to be moving forward cases around pollution, around ecocide, you know, even if the, the law isn't, isn't yet in place. And, you know, we've actually had, you know, judges and, and lawyers sort of saying to us, you know, how can we into start integrating this language into the cases that we're already taking? So, you know, when we, we can also see that it, it's, it's not, it, 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 this won't be a struggle against the legal system about having, you know, something very exact so that, you know, lawyers have to do it. Lawyers want to do it. Mm. You know, we're, we're, we're already in a situation where there will be so many people who will want to be taking prosecutions around ecocide. Yeah. I mean, what we imagine is that any initial cases will probably be quite clear cut, like, yeah, I don't know, a, a massive toxic waste dumping or an oil spill that could have been prevented or, you know, sort of big things like that that can actually, because of course you're going to want the first cases to succeed. So take quite clear cut cases, but over time, you know, this effectively the, the flexibility and imagination of the legal people working with this law will also help to strengthen it and help to develop those those norms that we were talking about earlier. So, so yes, absolutely. I think I think it will be it will be a definition that is very usable. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think that that's yeah. good to hear and exciting steps. I think to the future. Um, but that brings me to the question: of what listening to all of this for? Yeah, everyone who's tuning in, what, what are the next steps in the campaign and how can people contribute to, to pushing this to the top of um, their national or the international agenda so that we can make um, an international crime on ecocide a reality? Well, um, the, the the key sort of our key sort of work at the moment is really growing this conversation so that it's as broad and deep as possible. And obviously, one way that can happen is by people joining the campaign and you know becoming Earth Protectors, which is what we call our members. But most of all, it's going to be about spreading that conversation. Mm -hmm. So you know, we all have networks, and it's so it's about connecting and using those networks. And in fact, over the summer, we're bringing out more you know more and more sort of information uh, on social media that's really kind of very straightforward and shareable um and and so that will also really help um we're also going to have a digital toolkit which is coming out in um i think it's it must be a few weeks time or less now that will give people pl plenty of tools that they can use to 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 expand that conversation um and of course you know it's always you know any anyone who has you know followings in whatever area you know it's it's really worth introducing this concept into you know into all you know as many different sectors and different um, networks as possible so that's probably the single most helpful thing at the moment is really sort of broadening deepening and spreading that conversation yeah. so that politicians feel safe obviously um you know contacting your own politicians is always going to help because the more they hear about it the better and also that can be at national and at regional level as well as international level so at the moment for example there is um, a crime directive uh, in the eu that is being revised which is the environmental crime directive 
Um, and we're, we're producing a position paper on that, 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 you know, NGOs and groups can endorse, for example, and that will be going out for endorsement quite soon. Um, you know, effectively encouraging the EU to move forward at a regional level, because of course, you know, if, if those countries, you know, if that, if that come, if the EU comes on board, then that's already a big chunk of countries towards the ICC as well. Um, so yeah, so there's a, there's a whole, um, yeah, there's a number of different ways to, to be supporting it. Yeah, for sure. And I think also sort of just raising awareness on like what, what is happening. I know um, we have a little banner at home that my parents put. I When I came home, I was like, oh my gosh, this is very exciting. They, uh, my parents put up the Ecoside banner on top of their garage. So you can see, just see it outside. And I think that's a great conversation starter. People are like, well, what is this about? Absolutely. Or hanging it in the window or something, you know? And then yeah, people yeah. are like, oh, what is this? And maybe look it up on their own or start a conversation with you. Yeah, and totally. Think, Absolutely. This is exactly the sort of thing that needs to happen. And yeah. and actually, if you go to our website, there's an act now menu. And, and there's all sorts of things like, you know, for example, you um, there's the resources for printing out you know those those placards and those those banners and 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 there's lots of other you know ideas as well of things that you can do so um so yeah there's many many ways to get involved yeah. but you know visibility is a really key word so I love that I love your parents putting it on their garage I mean that's perfect you know every, everybody know. starts doing that you know if it starts appearing in people's windows or the back of people's cars or those kinds of things exactly. you know yeah, I think, yeah. and it's you know in that way it's so easy to do something with that and to start a conversation and to contribute in some way you know just by putting up a poster or I don't know sharing something on social media about it yeah. and you know just because that widens the sphere of it making it I guess a conversation everywhere which is exactly what we need to sort of make it a conversation around the world yeah. um, because that adds to sort of that citizen push of saying well this makes sense we want this mm, absolutely. <laughs> um, which which definitely does also translate to the international level so yeah exciting exciting times lots of work to do but um well yeah I for one I'm 100% behind it and want to support more as well so I think it's really yeah. exciting that all of this is happening and I mean also personally because obviously I study um international um climate change law environmental law so to have that sort of come up as I'm I guess it sort of have this become such a big concept, you know, as we're studying it, it's so exciting because yeah, it's not it feels just very about... live. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's it's a live and, and... conversation. It's not just law that's made years and years ago that maybe yeah. isn't even as relevant now anymore, but it's something that is happening in our sphere now that we can all contribute to and yeah. change. So. Absolutely, that's no, really exciting, and of course, we're going to have a big presence at the yeah. um, COP twenty seven and at the. Um, Convention on Biological Diversity in December, which is now happening in Canada, and of course at the ICC, the International Criminal Court, which is, they also have their assembly in December. Um, Climate Week in New York, you know, there, there's a number of you know sort yeah. of international events where you know this will also be popping up. So, you know, um, yeah, whenever and wherever you can talk about it, show your placards, uh, move it forward, then that would be amazing. Of course, of course, and I think it's it's so exciting to see it not just happening. I'd say uh, international, but sort of like environmental sphere. I thought it's it's a really great idea looking at sort of how to bring naturoids and, and ecocide things more into the CBD as well, which I think mm. is quite exciting. So to have that move in different environmental spheres, because obviously it's all interconnected, is is very exciting. So yeah, 
Um, but thank you so much for your time and um, sharing your passion and your explanations about ecocide law. I, well, I'm, I'm excited and pumped to have like take action now. So I hope listeners are too. Print the posters, share the posts on social media, share this podcast episode, you know. Jojo, thank you so much. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Same to our listeners. And um, yeah, see you again soon. <laughs> yeah, let's keep each other posted. <laughs> okay, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for tuning in to Ecoactivist Journeys. I really hope you enjoyed this podcast episode and are inspired to take action in your sphere of influence. Join the movement of changemakers around the world, follow Ecoactivist Journeys podcast on Instagram or me personally, Ecoactivist Leah. And yes, let's stay in touch, let's stay connected and form a movement to create the change that we want to see in the world. Take care and have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye.